So whether you're an officer, you're a director, you got to realize the liability will pierce a prevail and it can reach you. I know a lot of my peers have DNO, but what I've been pushing lately is identification from the board level. So CSOs are not held personally liable because uh, I, you know, we have to realize is our compensation, is it going to be enough to cover the risk that we may be accepting in our role? From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Jeff Furnich, SVP Technology and CISO at New American Funding. Jeff says he was born with a screwdriver in his hands, and his fix-it attitude first landed him a job as a general contractor. Now he's a CISO who prides himself on solving security problems. He joins us to cover how he makes career decisions and manages risk at his organization. A CISO faces risk unlike almost any other corporate position. And with the right strategy, that risk can pay off. So why join a cab for one of your vendors? How do you know when it's time to leave a company? And what is the true personal, professional, and monetary cost of a breach? Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the show. For those that might not know you, if you would please introduce yourself. Hi, Steve, and thank you for having me. My name is Jeff Rinich, and I'm the uh, SVP of Technology Service and a CISO at New American Funding. Now, how long have you been doing that, Jeff? I've been in this role three years and three months. Okay, so you've been there just a little bit. We'll get back into the the current role at New American Funding, but you didn't start there. And if I remember right, last time we spoke, you were actually an accounting major and then decided that wasn't for you and went into being, I think, a general contractor and then decided IT. Uh, did I get most of that right? That's correct. That's all in my very early 20s. Uh, and I'd say probably by my mid-20s, I was still trying to decide what I really wanted to do. And I fell into taking a Nobel CNA course that was being advertised through my university. And that kind of kickstarted my career into IT at a rapid pace. So you are, I mean, then to me, it sounds a little bit foreign and maybe even a little bit of a stretch, but I, I love the fact that you did it. But for me, the the idea that, hey, I'm an accounting major and which in many circumstances was fairly close to IT, right? AIS and many of these systems were sort of the first business systems to need heavily reliance on technology. So it may not have been a stretch. You certainly had the aptitude for it, obviously. But if you're already at university and then they're going to offer one more certification course, like, did you jump into that thinking, what the hell did I just get myself into? Or, or did it come naturally and you're like, yeah, I got this. I understand all, all of what this is. Where were you mentally when you started this? So take a step back. I was actually a general business major, a BS in business administration. Of course, I did a lot of accounting work, a lot of finance. But at the time, that's kind of when the, there was a, the banking crisis, SNL, and so the big banks were starting to merge. So all the jobs of finance were pretty much drying up. And, and my back then was pretty much 
mainframes, computer rooms. The novel kind of just started getting popular at an early stage. So I kind of took a, a stab at it, took a course of my own, paid out of pocket. And then about two weeks, I had a job uh, back then doing a uh, IT role. To me, that's amazing. I think that is amazing in a good way, but also I know folks that have that have taken classes, undergraduate work, certifications. It just seems like a rapid turnaround. How did you feel when you started the new job? So you've you've you're certified, you've had the class, you're aware of uh, basic principles and terminology, but now there's a business system, or now there's a process. It's not in a book anymore. Anything come to mind about the feeling of that? That hey, you're not a, you're 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 now working in technology. I mean, it's exciting because it's a, it definitely changed the direction as a newer field, and to even go before that. So when I did, when I was just getting out of college, I did have a job at accounting, and back in those days, there was the concept of manufacturing resource planning (MRP), which today is known as ERP. But there was one computer, Compact Pro Line. It was managed by the small kind of department which I was part of. So in reality, I was dabbling in tech back then. The PCs in the office and the warehouse were definitely another area that myself and my manager managed. We were cabling, Cat5 cabling, and terminated. Yeah, so I mean, I kind of did the uh, the hard labor in the beginning to what became you know a much more larger enterprise IT. So I didn't give you enough credit early on. You were part of, you were you were doing other support and pulling cable and 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 you were generally familiar. You weren't green to the concept of technology when you began to take that class. So you had had other familiar you you had signed into the you know to this this compact. I kind of laughed hearing that. I haven't heard that term in, you know that name in a while. And you were understanding of basic principles of 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 tech. So that's that's a little bit. I just I just love the the story of get certified and get a job is to in how I initially processed it. So you you did this and then you went on and you worked for Century City. I worked for a large property manager that managed a lot of HUD properties in SoCal and the Bay Area. They actually owned properties for Docks, Marine Del Rey. And uh, when I joined there with my Nobel certification, what ran the business was an HP 3000. Bell was kind of new, so I was kind of the new green guy in the room trying to understand what all the tech was. And uh, I was definitely the grunt in the very beginning. But I did that for probably about nine months, maybe a year. And then I took a job as an MIS manager at a small movie studio in Century City. And that's where I kind of started my career as being a, a manager and then eventually a leader. You were talking about there's kind of a unique, a little bit different kind of slant on that entertainment studio. If I remember correctly, it's the distribution rights kind of thing, but you did go to a movie premiere, which I don't remember when it came out, but you said it was the uh, the Lost Boys. What year did that come out? What year was this, roughly? So the company was MDP Worldwide back then. The name is probably rebranded many times. And yes, they, they were mailing distribution for the rights to uh, license movies for airplanes, for cruise ships, international usage. But they did have some production. One of the main movies they did before I got there was Lost Boys. But the movie they produced, I was I went to the premiere with, what was pretty exciting, was a 
Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. I may have been the quest or one of the other. I remember. But uh, yeah, I remember walking the red carpet and uh, yeah, it was a neat experience. I Okay, I misread that. I thought in the my memory and even my notes I took on this, I thought you went to the Lost Boys premiere, which frankly would have been much cooler because uh, I know, not that I haven't, I've seen several, uh, probably all of, Jean-Claude Van Damme's films, but uh, certainly have seen The Lost Boys uh, many times, but I've never been to a movie premiere, so you've, you have me beat in that regard, definitely. But I will say back then, I was very active in the Novell user group. There was a, a group there in the West LA, off the 405. I go to the meetings every month, maybe more often. So I took every opportunity there was to learn about Novell and other technologies and Novell built-in routers, because in those days, you did everything in the Novell server. Your way, your network is all in one. It it is. I'll tell you the the guys I know that were the Novell admins and the companies I worked for. I was never a Novell admin, but my friends, many of my friends, were in that position. And from a feature set, and more importantly, from a stability standpoint, really a superior platform. Oh, it was. I mean, the efficiency was just amazing. It was a very controlled environment, hardened, so all the code was clean. Unlike the later server bar, which was a Windows middle server, you needed a lot of those to do the same kind of processing. I, I even forgot about the sort of defining networks, obviously file and print, domain rights, all these things. It was really kind of a powerhouse. And um, yeah, I anyway, that's I think that's a that experience, I think, is probably in that era, one of the best things you could have spent your time on looking at your your present career. I mean, in, in terms of understanding the fundamentals and the philosophies, even though it's a bit of a dead technology, the concepts certainly live on. And you had a lot of that packed into sort of one platform. Would you agree to that? Definitely. It was it's, it was a pretty powerful house back then, what it could do. And I think the closest competitor was probably banging binds at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the younger listeners, none of this is going to, no one's going to know what the hell we're talking about right now. But these were, these were hot new tech elements back in, well, I don't know what year uh, this started for you, but for me, it was late 90s uh, in that window of time, certainly early 2000s. Yeah, probably maybe early to mid 90s. Yeah, yeah. For I, I, I just smile hearing this stuff. So I'm going to take a, take a little bit of a break. I know you had, you went on and, and did some, some other stuff before getting into kind of a bigger, bigger positions. But at this point, if you could go back and, and give advice to your younger self, is there anything that you wish you would have done differently right now? You have a management role, but you were very technical. Any advice that you would have given yourself, if you could talk to your, the version of yourself back as you're supporting Novell and doing other things, from a life perspective or a career perspective, do you have anything you'd say? Well, it's really hard to go back in time without a crystal bar what to do. But early on, I probably would have dabbled in the bar area to get exposed as much technology as possible rather than the corporate area. Yeah, I had the opportunity to pivot probably a few years later with the bar. And back then, that's when Netscape was beyond the browser. They had various Netscape products. And I can't remember some other ones, but I decided to say the corporate route. But that definitely would have changed my career trajectory. I probably also would have stayed in Silicon Valley, at least from a career point of view. Of course, that would change my my life plan with my wife and daughter because I want to meet them. I have my daughter with my current wife. But I think just the, the growth of Silicon Valley has been much 
more explosive than what SoCal would have been at the time. Interesting. Do you think the same thing applies? Like, would you encourage those? So just full transparency, I had a pretty much a full IT career before I went on to work on the vendor side. I was always the customer, if you will, and then I was an advisor and then uh, obviously now an employee at Exabeam at a startup. What was the time a startup? Now it's not really one anymore beyond that. But I think that I spent whatever, 15, 16, 17 years as working in banking, lending, financial services. And I've often wondered if I had gone into maybe consulting or maybe worked on, as you said, the VAR side, or maybe at a startup, how things might have been different. I love how things have turned out, but I ask it just for those that may be considering it. I've had people that have had similar jobs that went into work, maybe not in the VAR space, but also you know, vendor VAR. And they're like, life is so much better over here. You mentioned explosive. What do you mean by explosive? Tell me what you meant by that. How would your life, do you think, could have been, from a career perspective, been more explosive? Well, the small time I spent on Cobb Valley, you know, that was a center of the universe for tech. All the big names are there. Sun, Apple, of course, Netscape. Uh, this is way before the time of Google and Facebook. So I remember I worked in Sunnyvale, lived in Los Gatos, and just everything around you was based on tech. And of course, then all the IPOs, it's rapid growth and the insane valuations. Of course, Yahoo was a big one back then. So just a lot different in the growth you would see, particularly in a career trajectory if you're located outside the Silicon Valley. Completely agree, especially in that window of time. Of course, this is all pre-2001, which there was kind of a, a, a bubble that had burst, but there's a lot of money that was made prior to that and then certainly beyond. I do think from a career advice standpoint that if you see a company that you maybe you're a customer of and you love and you have the opportunity to go work with them, I would actually highly recommend it. So maybe switching from a traditional defender role or even an executive role for a, a normal organization and maybe go to the, the vendor side. I think there's an incredible amount of benefit. Now, a lot of things, their stipulations apply, right, as they say, but I think it's something that everyone should consider. I think it all starts with relationships as well. So how, what's your relationship with that company and their, their leadership team, their sales team? You know, what is the tech, these sorts of things? If anyone listening is considering it, I would absolutely do your homework, but I would take that, that plunge. I would highly recommend it. Anything from what you see today, so we were talking in the past, but does that advice hold true for you? Would you recommend that? Or what stipulations might you have for that type of recommendation? Well, I think if you're in a standard corporate environment, your your job is so broad. You're dealing with so many different departments, organization, so many different initiatives and priorities. So you really have to juggle that. And sometimes there's things you need to do and want to do you can't. I think, I can't speak out experience, but what I would assume when you work for a, a vendor, you focus more narrowly on that vendor's product and services. And of course, at a bar, you may be a little broader if you're focused on some of the key vendors that you're, that you're selling and pushing to your customers. Do you think that there's, in many cases, if you're a, another change that happens, I'd like your perspective on. So let's say you're in a leadership role, manager, director, maybe even a CISO in a traditional organization, and you go to a a VAR or a either reseller or, or, a, or a software company, there are 
different flavors of positions you can go into, uh, as you're well aware. If you're the CISO, you might go in and be the CISO there. Um, our own CISO has, has done that, Tyler, who's amazing. So he's actually doing CISO work, but he also helps with other sort of you know, media and speaking, and he's very bright. So it's a bit, little bit of a hybrid role, a little bit of expanded, but still has a direct defense mission. In other cases, like mine, I have no operational role uh, other than being an advisor into the operational roles, product, marketing, these sorts of things. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because those are very different career choices. And I gave an example that's sort of close to my heart. But would you ever step into a role that was not technical, that was more sort of strategy and going into a, a, a vendor or a VAR? So, so you're sort of networking and you're sort of educating, if you will? Yeah, I'd be very open. I mean, that's more about strategy. That's more being like an evangelist, which I do today in my current role to try to drive transformation around security and parts of IT. You know, I do a lot of interaction with CEOs of some of the largest companies, founders. So uh, there's a lot of people I do know. And I'd say a lot of times I'm an early adopter of some of the tech for my controls. But uh, it's fun. I mean, I'd say I'm less of a type of guy that likes to keep the lights on once it's running. I like to fix things. I was asked many years ago, what's the one word to describe me? And my response was MacGyver. <laughs> MacGyver. So some listening might not know it's a, it's a television show. And what is Jeff, what does MacGyver typically do? Build almost anything out of a box of junk. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it goes back to, you know, I got my contract license probably at 2021. With no formal experience, but I was essentially born with a screwdriver and a hammer in my hand from an early age. You know, I grew up on a not a large property, definitely like half an acre. And I did all kinds of things around it, stone working, name it, construction work. So back then, I used that experience. I took pictures of the work I did, and I sat for the test without hardly studying. Of course, I read the book. I was the first one done the class. I thought, oh, I had to fill this. I passed. And here's guys who are working under German for a few years in the trade. So it's really about, you know, what's your mindset, what's your adaptability, how fast can you comprehend? You seem to be very adapt. I mean, I would say, you know, kind of taking both the Novell certification story and then I didn't had you hadn't shared this with me. At very least, you sound like an excellent test taker, uh, but you seem to be extremely adaptable too. And and the MacGyver, yeah, the example I was gonna say is not only does MacGyver build things out of sort of leftover parts, he's always in a position where there's some crisis and he has to sort of save the day, utilizing whatever sort of in the junk drawer or in this random house he's found himself in or wherever and to sort of make it work to sort of defeat this sort of crisis or this maybe sometime an adversary. Jeff, do you think that you felt the same way? As a security leader or a security technician, I know we spoke about you enjoy being what you mentioned, but I'll, I'll bring it up, is development partnerships with vendors, like kind of taking, and no disrespect to any of the vendors, but almost unproven or very new tech to adopt it at a lower or no cost so you get good benefit, but maybe the results 
aren't as simple as and easy as is one might tolerate but because the macgyver mindset you're sort of like hey i'll roll with it can you unpack all of that for us and why you do it and what the pitfalls are but why you enjoy it well i mean my approach has been for the most part best of breed some larger security companies out there are the ones i use but there's also i have startups i use as well and uh sometimes i could be the first or second adopter in the u.s so it depends on the capabilities and the need to fill the gap. I think with a recent mortgage meltdown, revenue has dropped significantly from the last couple of years. So I have to be creative. How can I meet my needs for all the controls for compliance, which are CIS controls for CCPA in California, FTC Safeguards Act, NYDFS controls, and more. Mortgage, you know, I'm accountable also, for example, for eight states. So there's various entities, government, business-related, that require to have controls in place. So I just got to be creative. And, of course, I can't put control in place with no funding. But if I could do it cheaply and help drive innovation with that vendor, or it's a partnership where you both win, I think that's definitely uh, something I would do and I want to do. Yeah, well, I completely agree. I think there's a lot of benefit that comes with it. I, I think for the for the listener, if you could break down... Obviously, need is going to drive this. And sometimes being the need to be frugal, you know, if you if you grew up without any money, you're going to be a very creative kid. And I know that firsthand in the same way, if you have a, a very low security budget, I've seen security teams that have less funding that are sometimes in many ways better because they're not wasteful. They don't have sort of shelfware and things sitting around sort of collecting dust. But when you're evaluating if you if you had to give a talk to a room of CISOs, some of them not even technical necessarily, but they're they're looking to evaluate who might they consider. And I don't want brand names, but how do you evaluate? I'm going to guess. I don't have a framework for this. It sounds like you might have one of some of it's the tech, some of it's maybe the relationship you have with their leadership team, so the elements of trust that goes into it. What is your rubric on how to evaluate this to say, hey, so you can press against the scrutiny of saying, hey, who is this vendor? What are you bringing them in for? Talk us through that a little bit. Where, where does your mind go with that? Yeah. So let me uh, go back a little bit. I'll say, you know, I, I've worn two hats my entire career in tech, IT, and security, there's less IT vendors than there are security vendors. So strategizing how you do IT, there's less decisions to make for your selection process. In security, I've heard numbers in the three, four thousand, five thousand range. It just grows by the day. I just can't believe how many vendors are in, in certain segments. So it is getting more challenging. But you know, look at the Gartner Forrester reports at a high level. I talk to my peers. And many times I may be ahead of my peers on adopting something. And then that's, you know, it dive with the vendors, definitely trying to meet the founders or the current leadership of the CEO and having that point of contact. So it's a process. I like to say many times it's, it's, a, it's a well thought out decision that goes well. Other times like, yeah, maybe you should have with another vendor. It's just hard to tell because a vendor may test out grading a POC. You get a production six months later, it's like, well, there's things that didn't come up earlier. 
or they didn't innovate as fast over the past year I had them in, Bender B did. So it's really hard to say your decision at a point in time may be the right, but it may change. So in this now, my point is what I do. I don't, I don't marry vendors. I do pretty much one year contracts. So I can reevaluate the capabilities, their partnership integrations, all those things. Even pricing, pricing now is more important than ever. And, you know, some vendors will become more competitive than others. Do you think it takes a different type of skill set to sort of manage this because this is much more hands-on all of what you just described is way more hands-on than a lot of people would want to manage especially a CISO especially someone in a, in a role like yours so a lot of times you would have a, maybe a manager or a director or even just handing it off to procurement to do a lot of this type of stuff um, I will say that this type of new vendor slash leader cooperation can be pretty awesome I mean, if you're meeting with founders, if you've never done that, I would encourage it. Sometimes you'll get people that are a real pain in the ass, and other times you'll get amazing, intelligent people. And they may also still be difficult to deal with, or they may be amazing, but the, the, it's a different way of thinking. It's a different mindset. The commitment and the passion is often off the charts. And a lot of times I'll say that these organizations, and this will be a question for you, Often they're great at building stuff, but they may lack some of the knowledge that you bring to the table. Meaning if you've done this your whole career, you might ask a question or have an idea for content that they're like, hell, we haven't thought about that. So it, it can really be a great relationship. Have you found the same or is it less interesting than I described? No, it, it is. I mean, like I said, when I go to RSA and Black Hat, of course, I'll walk the expo short time. I rarely sit in sessions. My time is all really scheduled meetings back to back with founders, CISOs, even some of the, the VCs, because they bring a lot of, of their portfolio to the table, trying to promote what they uh, have invested in. And it's not just small vendors, too. I've had meetings with you know, companies, the CEO that are from $50 billion security companies, you know, one on one for half an hour. And I've gotten just tremendous feedback that it's like, wow, you know, it's just great meeting, Jeff. I don't know how many, it seems like a lot of the, the, in the vendor community, everyone asks, Hey, are you going to be at RSA? Right. And it's sort of expected, but it feels like the, the number, I, I don't know if this is a COVID thing or whatever. Maybe there's just too many vendors on special on the security side, but I think fewer CISOs are going to RSA. It feels like it's still a big event, but it, it seems like there's a little less, a less attended kind of events. I don't know. I, I'm impressed to hear that you're sort of scheduling these. Are these vendors you work with or ones that you're just wanting to learn more about or more? Some I work with, some I'm looking at, and some I'm just evaluating new areas in security or IT. Uh, RSA, yeah, I would. it's still pretty crowded. I'd, I'd say the challenges is all the meetings are usually hotels and it's all over Moscone. It's just a lot of walking back and forth, hiring, now, Black Cat is pretty much in the Four Seasons, Manly Bay, or, or another hotel nearby. So it's all much easier to get back and forth. But it's the only opportunity I really get to meet these people. So uh, that's it. Otherwise, you're going to have to fly around to many different places. And it's, it's a way to, to knock out a, a bunch of meetings for sure. Anything else you'd share in that sort of that space for those that haven't done it, that have never done all, any of what you're talking about, that have never sort of done that, that partnership or maybe that advisory type work? Anything else come to mind that you would recommend before you attempt to jump in? You mentioned 
connections with VCs. You mentioned meeting with CEOs. What if, what if all that sounds completely overwhelming? Is there a, maybe a, a, a smaller step that those that are wanting to do something greater than just contact their VAR that you'd recommend? Well, it's really about education, understanding the industry, understanding particular vendor space you have an interest in. You know, be show that you're knowledgeable, you have interest, and you provide value. I think there's opportunities and doors that open up. Uh, I'm on multiple cabs, even some strategy advisor boards from very large companies. So it's just good having that interaction. At the end of the day, it benefits you know my employer because I get better service. A lot of times I get better pricing. I help drive improvements. So, you know, if you want to put the time into it, it's definitely a win-win. I think for any IT leader or CISO that is not getting involved that to even a lower degree, is probably doing a disservice themselves in the, the organization. You just said something very important there, and I'm pissed at myself that I didn't have it in even in my notes, but I appreciate you saving me. The interaction with the vendor, the vendor organization, their leadership, you rattle off that you know, you're giving your time, you're giving your time, but it's also allowing probably for you to receive better service. You mentioned pricing. That may or may not happen in my experience. It probably would, but certainly service. I always felt like the organizations that I helped, just by virtue of familiarity, I got better response times and better feedback. And that shouldn't necessarily be the goal, but you might have a goal. Maybe there's a feature request, or maybe there's a real problem that you have of maybe an integration point that's not there. Hey, I need you to talk to this other thing that I have. And maybe because you're there, maybe they prioritize it. And when you talk about good outcomes, um, I can't think of a better one. Service, price, um, feature sets. I think that's that's something that I that I know, but I neglected to even have on my my points to cover with you. So I think that's, I think those are all extremely valid. Obviously you can't do it with every vendor, but choosing it, you know, carefully, I think is a really brilliant thing. I just changed my, my identity vendor. And before I bought the one I'm currently on out and just did a cover lot, cut up last week. I, I told my account manager, I want a meeting with the CEO. So I had the meeting and, uh, I had this contact and I've been emailing off and on. And, uh, I found out some of the other tools I use for uh, identity threat detection response for monitoring don't work with their platform because it's a, it's a newer version of it. So I got multiple CEOs on a chain. Of course, not all together, but from two companies at once said, hey, make an introduction. Please make this work for me. And yeah, that's, they're making progress. So it's good to see that. I mean, I think, I think if you consider your vendors, like you can't do everything alone. And if you think about the efficacy of your organization, you have to include other, you need, everybody needs help. And sometimes you hire the help. Sometimes you partner with the help. Sometimes you buy the, you know, if you think of it that way, look, there's many organizations and myself have, have done this in my past where you sort of knock the software provider, you knock the vendor, you knock the VAR about, Hey, it's not working. And there's sometimes there's a great reason too to do that, to have that opinion, to have that approach. But if it, if you go in negative, it's very hard to start off a relationship in a, on a negative and end on a positive. If you go in and you're thinking, hey, this is what success looks like. This is the first thing we're going to celebrate together. 
This is the first thing we're going to, this is the first problem we're going to solve. And then this is the rest of what I need, man, it's so much better. And so gluing these two founder CEOs together, uh, or CEOs, I mean, to be founders, but you know what I mean? Super wise. What did you, how long was that meeting? If I can, I can ask, don't say who it is, but how long was that first CEO meeting? The, and then what'd you cover? It was half an hour and talked about that Denny space. I explained my knowledge, what my strategy is, where I want to be. And the CEO was quite impressed and said, you'd be like a perfect customer. And, uh, I'll help them improve their product. I, I found there's some gaps they needed to address. Uh, the part ecosystem's not strong enough. And I said, if I got this challenge, other customers will, they do this migration. So, you know, it's better for both of us to uh, reach these goals. Cool. I, I want to pivot a little bit. You said something, and I made a note of it. I actually made it red. We were talking about earlier in your career. It was after you worked for NDS and a little after. You were kind of on this talk about earlier, mid-career, I'll say, but you made a statement. Uh, you said the best way to move up is to move out. And I, I, I bolded that and made it red. Now, there's a lot of things to be defined around that statement, but you even listed some items that are sort of triggers for that. If there's somebody listening to your show right now and they feel like they're stuck and they're thinking about what I just said. The best way to move up is to move out. Can you unpack that of why you have that opinion and not only why you have that opinion, but then what are some signals that it may be time to get the hell out? Yeah, I'll first say I'm not a job hopper. My longest tenure has been 15 years and that ended through acquisition from a very large tech company. But I've had other tenures where, you know, I've been very loyal. If you wait to the point where you realize I, I need to get out of here. It's probably too late. You should move sooner. I think my new perspective is I want to leave at the top of my game, not on the downward trend of my game. So uh, I think being in security, there's all kinds of opportunities. I'm hearing the average 10 years, about a year, year and a half as a CISO. So uh, that's great for mobility. So it's really up to the person. You know, you have to look at what's the partnership you have with your employer. Are you doing what you want to do? If you're just maintaining, if you're not fixing the problems you want to fix, if you have a lot of risk, then it's, it's probably time to think about moving on. You had, um, you gave some, some other examples and I wrote the, they were so good. I wrote them down and they're, they're, they're not overly exact, but I think that they're good mental triggers. You may not even remember that you said them because we met so long ago and there's a, been a difference for those that are listening between when we had our first chat and then now when we're recording. So. But you just said simply, you're like, when you see a diminishing impact to drive change, like if you could change, change things and then that sort of slows or stops, you know, maybe not leave immediately, but that was one. Uh, the other thing you said, which I laughed at because I've been there myself in my past life is spending more time on risk exception forms than fixing the actual issue. You saying that there must have been a very, very uh, deliberate and exact sort of situation that prompted that because that's a very very specific trigger, but it's a very real one. I don't know if you want to add to that any about the, the exception forms. Well, I think with the Uber breach, their CISO, you have to look at, you know, what's the amount of risk as a CISO you're taking on? Even today, I read that Delaware, if you're a corporate in Delaware, they just today, they're holding a company accountable, executives, and DNO insurance will not cover them. So whether you're an officer, you're a director, you got to realize 
the liability will pierce like a prevail and can reach you. I know a lot of my peers have DNO, but what I've been pushing lately is identification from the board level. So CSOs are not held personally liable because, uh, I, you know, we have to realize is our compensation, is it going to be enough to cover the risk that we may be accepting in our role? So you said some stuff there that everyone may not be familiar with. So you mentioned that a couple of things. So first off, the risk for the individual CISO or security officer, let's say, is is growing. And you mentioned Delaware, which many many companies, if you don't know, uh, incorporate in Delaware for everything from favorable, I believe it's referred to as corporate veil, uh, sort of inability to pierce the corporate veil is what it's known as, but there's many legal reasons and financial reasons to incorporate there. But it sounds like that Delaware has now flipped on some of that, and that veil has now been pierced, if you will, to include greater risk for those officers. I may have messed that up, but that's my on-the-fly analysis. Yeah, so Mount Reuters today, McDonald's, it's a McDonald's case, and it's a McDonald's case of the wake of a call for corporate execs. Botch, oversight, risk, liability. Very interesting. I mean, yeah, I just think exec have to realize security is top of mind. Privacy has got to be top of mind. And this is the year of a reckoning for a lot of organizations that don't have their act together. So you mentioned that, and for those that may not be familiar, many organizations, you have to carry professional liability policy uh, for yourself, directors and officers insurance, you know, errors and omissions type stuff. You're saying, though, that that's not enough and that you're wanting another layer layer or recognition to that because you went over that very quickly and for those that aren't familiar what is it specifically is there a different exemption that you're looking for defined in the corporate charter is there just greater recognition of those that are would be in the ELT or board how do you maneuver that for those that are not familiar with what you're referencing well, this is all rather new to me. Another CISO kind of brought it up. I talked to my peers. They're not here yet, but I think for large organizations, you have to look at Dino insurance only covers so much. And you look at the Yahoo CISO, Uber CISO, they were sued. They had to cover all, all their legal, legal expenses on their own, millions of dollars. So whether or not they were at fault, you got to realize there's a lot of costs there you can be covered, which could potentially bankrupt people. Yeah, you're sunk. You're sunk unless you have tens of millions, if you're in a, even if you're acquitted, your, your expenses exceed your assets. Yes. And I, I, re, I kind of talk all the time on, you know, what's the cost of a breach? Of course, you have the regulatory fines from various entities, from the states, from the attorney generals, you have the class action lawsuits. I mean, it's just enormous, the cost involved and some of that's going to trickle down to the CISO to some degree. Yeah. Well, it, depending on how you want to measure, there's even into mental and personal health, right? The stress that goes, I'm extremely familiar with this. A lot of the costs of a breach go well beyond monetary, but then it it gets in well beyond, to your point, corporate. There could be individual costs, individual now, what you're referencing is monetary sort of penalties, expenses, uh, legal fees. And to your point, what I used to talk about is the bad day factor. The CISO has a bad day factor almost unlike anyone else in the organization. Challenge me on that. You could be, you could be general, you could be counsel, you could be the CEO. 
I get it. You can go to jail. You can get, but I mean, it's got to be top five, but in many cases it's not. And I'm not advocating for top five pay, but you might, if your bad day factor is so high, like you've got to have parity. If you can get screwed at this level, you've got to have adequate compensation and protection, period. I mean, would you augment that thought or would you challenge it? No, I think we got to talk about it more. I think we have to make our peers understand that, you know, as our risk increases by the day, that threats increase by the day. And, you know, we got to make sure that in order for us to do our jobs, we can't worry about personal liability. You know, if you're committing a, a crime in that act, then of course you have to realize that will get to you, but in the normal business. That's why, you know, if you're focused on risk expression forms, like you mentioned, that's the point you have to question yourself. Is that where you want to be doing your job? You want to be fixing the problems. Right. Correctly. Well, absolutely. And and you're in a spot where you success, I've said this in the past, the success of the security program goes well beyond the walls of the CISO and the security team. It has to be part of what the company wants, full stop. And you referenced, yeah, if you're doing criminal stuff, yeah, that's, that's, that is, it's very well defined, but I'm even seeing elements, what they're defining as negligence, which there's a fine line between, well, is it the company just wants a bunch of risk exceptions filled out? Is that negligence, meaning not fixing the core problem, as, as Jeff, as you noted, or where does negligence come in? Because you can be sued for that. And so all of this to me is fascinating. And to your point, I mean, maybe this would sound like it would be an excellent presentation for someone to do uh, or, or a group of people of where is this? And I'll, I'll counter some of this. I think there's also a lot of bad CISOs and a lot of bad security leaders that, that aren't ready to even sort of approach the, you know, the, the mantle of this sort of top five risk position, top five pay position. Like they're just not ready and maybe too few are, but how do we get people ready? How do we get them prepared for that? And how do we sort of expose the reality of, look, this is becoming a very risky position at a personal level. I don't know that I've heard anyone directly talk about that openly yet. Maybe that's your next extracurricular, Jeff. There are organizations. I mean, there's some that do board training for CISOs. I was in program, a short program last summer. They have a small certification called QTE. You see the SEC talk about their new regs coming out. So I think it's in the point where working for a, a public company may be a safer bet because there's just more controls you have to meet. You got Sarbanes-Oxley, you have SEC, you have all the privacy regs in various states, VA. So uh, I used to think years ago, oh, banking's hard because just all the regulations. Now it's like, give me more regulation. That's just more like a quote when I ask for funding when I talk about risk. If you don't listen to me, here's the regs in. They're telling us that we have to do this. 100%. I got, I got one more thing, actually two more things. One, you mentioned the SEC. Uh, we don't have time to cover it here, uh, maybe in a future conversation, but pay close attention to what the SEC has going on uh, in terms of reporting material incidents, security incidents, certainly of breaches, but that may be something that's a part of your, your 10K in the future. Uh, if, it, if it gets passed, uh, that'll change the world on, on, in so many ways. So pay, keep your ear to the ground on that if you're listening to this. Thank you for bringing that up as well. I think you're, you are very well aligned in listening to the right stuff, certainly. I got one more question for you, Jeff. We've covered an immense uh, variety of topics today, and I, I appreciate you guiding us through them. But pursuant to the name of the show, uh, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you, Jeff? 
the CISO is now elevated to the, the executive and even the board level, right? Because there's so much risk. Cybercrime is now the third large economy in the world. And from, if the report I saw is correct, it may surpass China in the coming few years. So we just got to realize that in order to protect an organization, we need to educate, educate, and talk. And uh, we'll never get what we want on day one, but it's a journey with the business, with the other leaders, and we just got to show them, show them the path forward. Excellent. Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure. Take care. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.